O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. As we have been learning together how to lament, we've learned that there's no point in trying to hide from God what we experience, what we think in our hearts, or even what we think of God. Jesus tells us that God the Father loves to hear our prayers, even when we're angry or in sorrow or in despair. And especially when we think that our issue is God's fault, the only person who can hear this lament and do anything about it is God. So better just to give it to him. Now the situation in Psalm 80 appears pretty rough. The problem in this psalm is not personal or private, so to speak. It has to do with the afflictions brought upon the church. Asaph, the psalmist, describes in vivid detail the common experience of the Christian congregation. She is often given to be in contention with her neighbors. Those who hate her, because they hate Jesus, seek her ruin and destruction. But worse yet, it seems to the church that we, the good planting of God, once vibrant and growing, is now being broken down. And if we're honest, we'll say that it's God himself doing it. It seems that she's being plundered by the world and by false face, even other Christians around her. So the psalmist would have us ask this remedy against the plight, and that is for God to reveal to us his glory, a theme that appeared early in the psalm. It's verse 2. You who sit upon the cherubim, reveal yourself to Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Then three times comes the refrain and that makes the same prayer. Three times we say, restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine again, and we shall be saved. This is the desperate plea of the church, which is being assaulted from within and from without, and is even doubting the perseverance that God has promised to her. Now, if we pay attention, though, the order of the refrain is important. That phrase is repeated three times. And that God shows his face, his glory, only to those have been converted, when one is restored, or when one turns, or one is converted to the Lord, then the veil is taken away, and we see God's glory. So the psalmist is having us pray for conversion, that is a change in our hearts, that we may behold the glory of God and thereby be saved. First, the Spirit works repentance, and then second, we behold the glory of Christ crucified for forgiveness, for rescue, and for salvation. 
But it is important to note that this is a psalm of the church. It's in our hymnal, unlike some of them we've been praying. It is a prayer of the church, a petition for conversion made by those who are presumably already converted and already have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, already been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and already have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Even these, even you, our psalmist saying, still need even further to be converted and further to be saved. The perseverance of the saints is not that they cease from their sinful rebellion in this life, but properly speaking, the perseverance of the saints is Christians living in their baptism daily, dying and rising, repenting and being forgiven in Jesus. You probably remember from many a Reformation day, Luther famously began his 95 Theses this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Of course, the 95 Theses are kind of a mixed bag. So if you prefer the authoritative theological constitution of the Lutheran Church, the Augsburg Confession, here's what it says. It is taught among us that those who sin after baptism receive forgiveness of sin whenever they come to repentance, and absolution should not be denied them by the church. Properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow or terror on account of sin, and yet at the same time to believe the gospel and absolution, namely that sin has been forgiven and grace has been obtained through Christ. And this faith will comfort the heart and again set it at rest. Amendment of life and forsaking of sin would then follow, for these must be the fruits of repentance. As John says, bear fruits that befit repentance, Matthew 3. Rejected here are those who teach that persons who have once become godly cannot fall again. Hmm. Neither conversion nor salvation is, according to to our confession, but really according to the scriptures, a once and for all thing. Where the often repeated command to repent appears invariably in the present imperative tense. That is, throughout the New Testament, over and over, that word repent is given in the present imperative tense. I know grammar. Jesus is the word made flesh and he speaks through words, so grammar matters children. Present imperative, this grammatical form means something much closer to, if you're going to translate it accurately, keep on repenting. Keep on repenting, over and over. According to the sustained exhortation in in the book of Hebrews, those who have already repented should be careful about falling again to sin. And, of course, that happens as the Father, well, he tests us with discipline. Listen to what the writer says. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
That's how Hebrews 12 begins. But in a similar manner to Jesus, we learn quickly thereafter that we are disciplined for the sake of faith. And that discipline is for our benefit. Chapter 12, verse 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. No chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. <laughs> you can ask a child who's been disciplined. I have a few here. Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So it is that God repents us, and it's a daily exercise. Similarly, similarly though, it's the same with, being respect, with respect to being saved. In the Bible, words about salvation are more often used in the future tense than in the past tense. Not I was, was saved, but I am or will be saved. And that's how the psalmist went. The prayer, O Lord of hosts, convert us. Show forth your face and we shall be saved. We shall be saved. And that's always appropriate to our condition. The psalmist is describing the life of the church. The church is the body of those who are constantly being converted and being saved, repenting and being forgiven, dying and rising again. To help us, in Psalm 80, then, there are two chief metaphors to describe the church, both of which teach the same thing, the flock and the vine. You know the flock metaphor quite well. The church is a flock, and thus the psalm commenced. Attend, O shepherd of Israel, you who herd Joseph like sheep. The holy church is called the flock of God who is awaiting the day when the chief shepherd appears. 1 Peter 5. And who is elsewhere called the great shepherd of the sheep. Hebrews 13. So we begin the psalm that way, our praying as the flock, for the appearance of our shepherd. Left to our own devices, sheep have been known to get themselves terribly lost, and as our psalm suggests, are vulnerable to many predators. And so we lament, and it leads us to plead to God again for rescue and to restore us again. The second metaphor used in the psalm, though, is of the vine. And the church, of course, is the vine. You transplanted a vine out of Egypt, it said. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the way before it. You planted its roots, and it filled the earth. That's quite a beautiful vine, isn't it? One that has boughs and fills the earth. It's the, if you don't mind the, the word, the Catholic or universal plant. This vine, for its branches spread everywhere. Its shadow covered the mountains and its boughs the cedars of God. It stretched out its limbs to the sea and its tendrils to the rivers. But again, as we heard from Ezekiel, this vine is at least as vulnerable as the flock of sheep. As we heard in the psalm, a boar from the forest has ravaged it, and a wild beast has eaten it up. A boar from the forest has ravaged it, and the wild beasts have eaten it up. Such things do happen to the church, of course, whether from 
give a few examples, the imprisonment at Philippi, the beatings and dissensions of the Church of Corinth, the attacks for heresy in Galatia, that synagogue of Satan at Smyrna, or the deeds of the Nicolaitans at Ephesus and Pergamum. Of course, those are just the New Testament congregations. We've seen the same be true throughout time. It is against such beastly ravages that the church continues to pray this psalm. There's more than enough examples in, the history, in our history to know that this psalm has always been on the lips of the faithful as we lament our condition as a church and plead to God to save us again. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. There we pray for victory. And the victory for which we pray, moreover, is the ultimate vindication of Christ our Lord in this world. The one referred to in the psalm as the man of your right hand or the son of man whom you have strengthened for yourself. This is the same man of which the first psalm had said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Or of Psalm 8, who inquired, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? So we see in the psalm that this vine, the church, or if you prefer the flock, belongs to Christ. And our cause in this world is his. It also means then that the enemies of Christ are the enemies of the church. And so when we lament, our lament leads us to repent. And then in repentance, we confess that it is Christ Jesus alone who can and will restore and save us. Of course, the New Testament finally answers definitively what Asaph the psalmist prays for by the Spirit. St. Paul speaks in his second epistle to the church of Thessalonica with an answer. The final doom of those who seek to undermine your faith, those boars that ravage her, or the wild beasts that try to consume her, the final doom of those who seek to undermine your faith is described in an even more colorful way by Paul in that second epistle. He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing which God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And thus we pray, looking forward, future tense, restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Amen.